0: It's Romans chapter 8. So turn there now if you can in your Bibles. This freaking chapter. This is Paul the Apostle's Abbey Road. It is his Mona Lisa. It is his stuffed crust pizza. This is that kind of chapter. And I can't even with this chapter. The author's letter to the church in Rome has one primary of objectivity. He are one primary object of focus for all who are in Christ. Certainty, that is the goal. Certainty. Certainty in what? The assurance of who we are in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Church is here in Romans 8. We encounter what's considered the heights of biblical assurance, the manual, the manual on Christian sanctification, and it's bursting. It's bursting and bloated with the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned, he's mentioned 20-ish times throughout this chapter alone. And by all commentaries and theologians alone, this is considered the chapter on the Holy Spirit. This chapter. Showing us that there's no understanding of assurance or security or sanctification without a strong fixation upon the power and the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. And if that's not enough, pastor and author John Piper has said before that the greatest book in the world is the Bible, and the greatest letter in that book is Romans, and the greatest chapter in that letter is Romans 8. And if you're here and you're like, I cannot stand Piper, cool, guess what? He's still affirmed as many and countless other theologians and pastors have added their own laurels to this chapter, calling it a tree of life in the middle of the garden, the highest of peaks in a mountain range, or simply the inner sanctuary of a great cathedral, Ladies and gentlemen, this is Romans chapter 8. So without any further ado, look at verse 5. It was actually Martin Lloyd-Jones, the amazing preacher, who said, it's actually kind of cool, that the real start of this great and most eloquent chapter starts at verse 5. So whoever taught last week, bummer on you, my dude. <laughs> and for what it's worth, it took Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher, 77. Did you mention this last week? 77 sermons to get through this chapter. I'm going to do it in four hours. <laughs> it's beautiful. I hope you packed the picnic basket. Verse 5. There we go. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on, guess what, on the things of the Spirit. So church, welcome to some of the clearest contrast we have in all New Testament writings. There are thousands of paradoxical or mysterious biblical questions, but not this time. It's that old cheesy quote. What did Mark Twain say, right? He goes, it's not the confusing parts of the Bible that bother me, it's the clearest parts of the Bible that bother me, and that is where we're at because today is clear, but today is wildly bothersome for many. It's gonna bother us. So verse five is one of them now. As Paul lumps, excuse me for my sniffles, as Paul lumps all of human history, all of human history into two categories. That's it. But doesn't Paul know about constructs and liquid categories? Doesn't Paul know that we are now in an age where we can expand our personhood beyond our uh, creation and reality? No. None of that is here. Nothing but loud truth. Everyone in this room is divided into mind of the flesh or mind of the spirit. Now, though, that word mindset isn't the word mind as some of us may think or have been used to hearing. It's rather known as our mind's disposition, our mind's bent, our mind's attention, our mind's will. It is the seat of all mental affections and faculties. Okay, So it's essentially your entire you. This is what he's talking about. It's your entire you. It is a mindset. It is a mindset. So to say in more everyday language, it's how we think, it's how we process, it's decisions we make, it's our logic, it's our consciousness. Some time ago, nearly actually 100 years ago, a statement was made that the reason that God had created such a vast number of human beings was for the purpose of carrying out certain experiments with all of them. Certain experiments. Today, with us. Now, it was Frank Labeck. He's an early 1900s Methodist and missionary, and he said God was holding certain experiments to see how much each of us could hold of him. That's what he said. How much each of us could hold of, or mindsets could absorb of the Spirit. a Sort of a supreme awareness of sorts. And this minister was nuts in the best way possible as he decided to live his life in the arduous pursuit of making every waking moment in full attention to the presence of the living God. That was his goal. And it sounds right, and it sounds insanely impossible. In this fantastic little book called Letters by a Modern Mystic, he writes, anybody read it? (laughs) It's teeny, right? It's small. In this little book, he says this. God... I want to give you every minute of this year. I shall try to keep you in my mind every moment of my waking hours. I shall try to let you be the speaker and direct every word. I shall try to let you direct my acts. I shall try to learn your language. I mean, he, would, he was nuts. He would go as far as the writing at the top of his diary, percentages of the attention span he had that day in the spirit. He'd go 50, 76, 2%. He would do it all the time. The reason I find this fascinating is because if he didn't do this, he exposes the negative side of the experiment. That being, if he's not putting his mind willfully on the things of the spirit, then what? Then it drifts effortlessly back to the harbor of the flesh. Now, though, let me suggest to you that there is a very dangerous misreading of the passage that can enter our theology and faith if we don't, if we don't follow Paul's logic carefully. Sound good? Again, from the viewpoint of heaven, there are only two mindsets, two dispositions, that being in the spirit, in the flesh, justified, condemned, children of grace, children of wrath, full stop, not open for discussion. But the grave misreading of this text is to believe that there could be followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, who live according to the flesh. You tracking? Now, flesh is a grave, it's just kind of a junk drawer term. And it's far more descriptive than it is explanatory. But here's the thing, it has a million explanations for it. A million. There's another part of the New Testament where Paul's describing, he goes, you know, the flesh is orgies and violence. And it's essentially, he does this, and yada, yada, yada. Even Paul cannot put boundaries on it. So the flesh refers to carnal appetites, sinful desires, worldly pursuits, material pleasures, nursing secular, unsound beliefs, self-interest, self-promotion, self-assertion, self-sufficiency, self-righteous, self-glory, self-aggrandizing, selfish. The flesh isn't even in uh, protest to the existence and purpose of God, as it wants God. Flesh wants God. It just wants God to serve it. You following me? It just wants God to serve it. So the flesh is the ultimate cry that I am ultimate. I am ultimate. And this can play out any number of ways, from orgies, violence, wretched anger, all the way to good morally, all the way to good religiously. But to say fleshly Christian is a myth. It is a myth. It's an oxymoron. It's the equivalent of saying married bachelor or good country music or. <laughs> <laughs> <Get out. laughs> or it's like saying a, a, a West Sider who lives outside the West Side, whatever. It's, it's a myth. There is no such thing as a Christian mudblood. There's way too many Harry Potter references in this sermon so far. It's as great. There's no such thing as a Jekyll and Hyde faith. It's wrong. So this morning, which do you belong to? There is no neutrality. Which mindset do you possess? And let me just say this. This particular... Categorical distinction in a world hellbent, hellbent on loosening categories is all that matters, Los Angeles. Beyond racial or socioeconomic distinctions, beyond all sexual distinctions or political distinctions or demographical or cultural distinctions, only one matters. Only one. In the span of our eternity, do you believe that today? Am I in the flesh or am I in the spirit? Now, if you're freaking out, thinking, holy crap, Casey, what if I'm not really a Christian after hearing all of this? Because you stumble or trip here from time to time, it's important to be aware that even when we are distracted by sin or by flesh, that's not an end to our faith because that is not who we are. A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ cannot sin without the inevitable consequences of a suffering conscience. In other words, if one is able to sin without remorse or without guilt or without concern or without repentance, then I believe Paul is saying, they're not in the spirit. But it gets fuller. Those two distinct individuals, Paul then traces their trajectory to two distinct destinies. Look at verse 6. Is this okay? Is this working? Everybody okay? Ethan? All good. All right, go. <laughs> Bryce, you brought your parents today? My goodness. Love you guys. My goodness. Verse 6. Now the mindset of the flesh is what? Death. But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset, verse 7, is of the flesh is hostile to God... Because it does not submit to God's law, indeed, it is unable to do so. Collective Church, to me... Um, are you kidding me, Keith? Collective Church, to me, this is the most penetrating, pathological description of one's fallen humanity in all of the writings of Paul. And if you're here and you're a Bible thumper and you go, isn't that Romans 3 or something else? I'd be hard-pressed to say, no, it is Romans 8. Now, before we get into the discussion of the doctrine of the text, I want us to observe something quite arresting that will take us to our next portion. Look at verse 7 again. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. Paul doesn't say that the flesh is passively neutral to God. It says it's antagonistic against God. As Paul decides to use a noun, if you look at the original language, if you look at all of that, it is not an adjective. It is not hostile to God. It is a noun. Are you tracking with what I mean by this? Church, do you have any idea how powerful this is? Because if you're here and you identify as a Christian, please listen ever so closely. And you're here and you don't identify as a Christian, please listen ever so closely. Especially here and you're not a Christian. The Bible is describing your current state with what I'm about to go over. This isn't hostile as an attribute. This is hostility, hostility itself. This isn't a rebellious person. This is supreme rebellion, this word. This is wicked incarnate. It is sin, is what Paul is saying. It is enemy. It is lust. It is envy. It's not a description. It is this. Simply the fleshly mindset is at active, active war with God. I've been thinking about this word quite a bit since the text was assigned to me for the last couple of weeks. And this particular word, I am shattered by it. I am shattered by it. Especially in the hostile post-Christian culture that we are a part of in this very moment. To consider the relationship of who we are to God and then remember what God is... I just kept coming back to these last couple weeks. Why? Why? Why is the flesh such an animal to the way of the spirit? And I was trying to ponder this and write things down. I mean, do, do you or does one hate God because he loves you? In his kindness, which he could have sent all of us to hell, yet we are here. We could be hungry, yet our bellies are full. We could be cold and in darkness, yet the sun is above us. We, you, could be in a nightmare, yet his mercy has steadied us. Does one hate God and is hostile to God for sending his only begotten son to hang on a tree? Is this why so many are hostile to God? Now, perhaps some here are denying this and saying, Casey, it's cool that you came back and your guest and blah, blah, blah. But this is a bit much. We are not all that bad. The classic saying that humans are good at their core. And you could be saying this Christian or not. And if that is you, if that is you, please be watchful. Please be watchful. As if you continue down that trail, you will find yourself disagreeing with Scripture constantly. Constantly. Because if we can't get this set, God's holiness and our vile guilt, then every floorboard in this house will start to come up. This is the genesis of deconstruction. This is it. That we are not as bad as we think, and God is not as good as we think. This is not a passage for the worst of the worst. This was you, Christian, and this was me. Verse 7. The mindset of the flesh is, there's that noun, hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Unable not because you or they can't, but because they won't, because their choice is the fruit of their nature. Unable morally to uphold as the mindset leads away from the life source that is God and his laws and his way. It naturally leads to a spiritual death and beyond that it leads to a second death and damnation and eternal divorce this is heavy you guys thank you again Ryan for these set of verses <laughs> so we have two distinct persons one of the flesh and one of the spirit and we have two distinct destinations one of death and war and one of verse 6 again but the mindset of the spirit is life in peace death and life flesh and spirit, war and peace. Now, this does not mean peace in this life. That is not what this means. In fact, Christendom needs an entire full reformation of what peace means as disciples. When it comes to the working of our faith, I believe that Christendom is lacking in understanding what this means. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where crossing Red Seas battling giants, breaking down walls, or even serving the local church is a time of peace. If you've been here any time, what you recognize is this is the furthest thing from peaceful. So this is now what it's talking about. The Christian life, what this is talking about, this is about peace with God, not peace in this life. And it is that peace which then all chaos can become tolerable and worth enduring. So if you're like, I don't have a peace about it, I get it. You're not supposed to have a peace about it. Should I be with her? I don't have a peace about it. What? I don't know if I should serve more. I don't know if I should be in discipleship. I don't have a peace about it. You're not going to have a peace about it. That's not the point. Verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. If we could, and take a little pit stop here, this, uh, this verse, at times, I believe we as disciples and followers of Jesus and Christians like to adopt. This verse. Those who are in the spirit like to absorb this. And we nurse this condemning ideology that we as Christians and sons and daughters of God cannot please him. We can't get stuff figured out. We don't read our Bibles enough. We don't pray long enough. We aren't super spiritual like Casey. And you never will be, okay? (laughs) And it results in a chapter, the results are that a chapter in Romans, which was meant to build us up, becomes a chapter of great shame. Because our fleshly distractions can't fully realize that God's satisfaction with us relies more on the Spirit's doing than ours. Romans 8 church is a song it is a chorus it is an anthem for the self-condemning child for the child who has yet to realize where they are positionally you and i are not outside the palace walls we are welcomed into the throne room we have burned the bridges behind us there is no going back to displeasure there is no going back to to condemnation there's no going back to fearfulness Again, there might be times where our actions get snared by fleshly traps, but from the vantage point of heavens, God's grace is so abounding, the the work of Christ so purifying, the presence of the Holy Spirit so present that it doesn't change God's pleasure with you. God is not displeased with you, Christian. Don't believe anymore that God is unsatisfied with you. And when we do, that is a satanic lie. A lot of Christians wrongly believe that God loves us the more and more and more and more we become like Christ. It's not true. We struggle to realize that our Father is just as pleased with us on our worst of days and our most disgusting and vile of sins as he was with Jesus on his most effective of days. Please don't ever confuse your pleasure with yourself as God's pleasure with you. Take these next two words and allow them to tenderly speak to you. Verse 9, you, however. War, death, flesh, you, however, Christian. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed. The Spirit of God, and look at these three words: lives in you. You remember Simba? Yes. Anybody remember Simba? Oh, come on, I get an amen. You remember that? Actually, yeah. You remember Simba? Remember when Simba was being all mopey and dumb? Who remembers that? He was being all dumb, and he was not living the way he should live because his father was dead. Spoiler, whatever. He was literally running around with rodents and pigs eating bugs. Do you remember this? <laughs> His life was utter crap, and he kept trying to convince himself, saying, hakuna matata, hakuna matata, bull crap. Your life is crap, okay? <laughs> what changed Simba's mind? A talking baboon hit him on the head, dragged him to the nearest watering hole, and said what? He lives in you. He lives in you. He lives in you. Your father lives in you. And Simba goes, I got it. And there's that beautiful running scene in the sound. <laughs> Simba got it. The question is, do we? Do we? The Spirit of God who was present in Genesis 1, the cause of the empty tomb, the mighty rushing wind in the birth of the church, The source of life and the army of bones dwells and lives within each and every Christian here. Doesn't pop by, doesn't visit, doesn't have a quick coffee and scoop. Residence lives unmovable within each and every one of us Christians. He lives in you. And do we believe that, that that changes every stitch and fabric of our being? Do you believe that? I love the way this Puritan laid it out. It's a bit of a fat quote, but bear with me. In regeneration, that being where the spirit gives us an entirely new nature of conversion, in regeneration, nature is not ruined, but rectified. The convert is the same man or woman, but new made. The faculties of the soul are not destroyed, they are refined. It is the same violin, but newly tuned. Christ gave not the blind man new eyes, but new sight to the old ones. Christ did not give Lazarus a new body, but enlivened his old one. So God, in conversion, does not bestow a new understanding, but a new light to the old. Not a new soul, but a new life to the old one. Church, it's as if the curtains have been ripped open in this very moment in this chapter. Ripped open. Open The defining difference between unconverted and converted is the residence of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, 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 you cannot deny change. There is no way we can be the same. Here is our final certainty and much needed assurance. Paul is saying you're not dead. You're not at war. God is not displeased with you. Act like it. God is saying you're not dissatisfied. He's not dissatisfied with you. You're not in the flesh. Live like it. Think like it. Move like it. Love like it. Disciple like it. Sing like it. And if conversion is what gets us the status of the children of God, it's the Spirit's regenerating power which gets us the nature of God. So this means that the Spirit enables our minds the spirit enables our minds, the will, the attention, the affection, the uh, the bend. It's the spirit's doing. Church, we constantly think it's our doing. Therefore, this whole different way, and this is what Paul is trying to get to in Romans 8, is entirely from the perspective of Christ of how we are to treat this life. How would Christ look at an annoyance? How would Christ look at an enemy? How would Christ look at or interact with the opposite sex? How would Christ look at our money, our bodies, jeez, our time, our culture, our politics? Not how your preferences would, which still cry, I am ultimate. And here's the best news I can possibly deliver this morning. It's only the Spirit who brings this about and he's striving on our part, guess what? It's flesh, it's religion. Why, because regeneration is no more of an outward reformation or a process of an education or even a religious cultivation. You and I can receive as much credit for our new spirit mindsets as a baby can for being born. Good job, baby, I did it. (laughs) What? Look how uh, John six says it, it's pretty direct. The spirit is the one who gives life. The spirit is the one. The spirit is the one. Not Theo. The spirit is the one. And look at this part. The flesh doesn't help at all. (laughs) The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. And this church, just recognize, is a miracle. It is a miracle. Verse 10. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness," in verse 11. "And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, thank you, Rafiki, lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through, through the Spirit who lives in you. The Christian body, all bodies still mortal. No one in this room has a resurrected body. We will all still die because of sin. We have the start of a resurrection heart, but our bodies will go into the grave. Not our spirit, because the spirit is life. He is alive. Church, are we seeing Paul's brilliant writing here as he aims for his climax? He is building tension to his great opus. This is the greatest thing he has written. And he's getting there, and he's building, and he's building, and he's making his case, and he's teeter-tottering, and he comes to this point, and it's electric. What he's saying, it's electric. And here it is. This is his ultimate point. May any and all anticipation in this life rest upon assurance. That's it. Rest upon assurance that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will gift you the same guarantee. Do we live with this kind of assurance? Do we live with this kind of assurance? Somebody once said that the acid test of Christianity is one's attitude towards assurance. Which Christians here, if we unfold this, I think we can agree with that that sentiment. There are things you and I will either struggle to do, and please hear me on this, we will either struggle to do or never do spiritually because we are not confident in the final certainty of his indwelling presence. Meaning, without the spirit-sealed insurance of what we just read, there are sacrifices you or I will never make. Without the spirit-sealed insurance, there are generous tithes and offerings we will never share. There are prayers we're afraid to pray. There are risks we will never take. There are people we will never disciple. There are embedded missionary mindsets we will never employ. We will hold things back because we are uncertain. We will hold things. We will hide ways. We will be fearful to walk up to that person. We will be fearful to allow certain prayer to be prayed over us because we're uncertain. We are unassured. Unassured. So then, church, what if, what if the reason for our faith or workings or our affections or longings haven't fanned into flame the way we want at times isn't because we're flawed or broken or God's displeasure with us? What if it's because we're weak in understanding of the Holy Spirit's, Holy Spirit's commitment to us? What if that's what's hindering the work? For Paul to settle our assurance on the resurrection by the working of the Spirit, he's seeking to display that any and all questions, doubts, or skepticism of God's good work be put to bed. Paul is like talking to his children, and he's saying, no more of this. No more of this. If I had the opportunity to end this talk With the church I love so much. And I may never come back to preach here, I, I don't know. And if I get one shot to ask one question with a community that means more to me than you will ever know, it would be something like this If the promises of the gospel and the resurrection and the Spirit's indwelling presence are true, how does that change how you see yourself? How does that change how you see this church? Warts and all. The resurrection and the Spirit's indwelling presence is true. How does that change how you see your role here? How does that change your problems? How does that change your fears? How does that change your responsibility and mission and discipleship? Your politics, the way you vote, your singleness, your sex life, your marriage, your child-rearing. May it never be said of this immensely beautiful community. May it never be said that they believed in the Holy Spirit, but never actually connected it to their minds and their prayers and their community and worship. Let me pray for you.